There were two men in a certain city. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man had many flocks and many herds. He's a farmer. And the poor man didn't have any flocks or any herds, but had one lamb. And he had scrounged up everything that he had to buy that lamb. He had fed that lamb. He had ate from his hand, drank from his cup. And we laid down, the lamb would lay next to him. The lamb had grown up with his children. One day, the rich man had a, a guest come. And wanting to be a good host for his guest, the rich man needed, of course, to prepare a meal for his guest. But of all the flocks and of all the herds, he was unwilling to slaughter any of his own lambs for the meal. And so he went and he had the poor man's lamb taken and brought back to his house and he had it slaughtered and prepared as the meal for his guest. The end. That's the end of the story. How does that story make you feel? Angry. Angry. Anything else? Sad? Yeah. Mad? Yep. What was that? Yeah. How, how, what do you think about the poor man? Devastated, right? You'd be devastated. Sad as well, yeah. What do you think about the rich man? Didn't care. What else? Greedy? Selfish. Yeah. See, in the days of the kings of Israel, we're in this series of divine conspiracy. We look at the first kings of Israel. In the days of the kings of Israel, stories like this would have been brought before the kings. So they could give wisdom and discernment and judgment into these kinds of cases, if you would. And this story was originally brought before King David. And his response to this story was the same as the response that we just had. In fact, the scriptures say that when David heard that story, he was infuriated. And he said of the rich man, he said, the man who did this deserves to die. But in the broader context of this account, there's actually a twist in the story that catches David off guard. And I think it's a twist in the story that's actually meant to catch us a little bit off guard as well. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at that broader context together. And we're going to look at how David gets caught off guard with this twist, how we, I think, are meant to be caught off guard with this twist a little bit as well, and then what we are to do in response to it. So please grab a Bible. 
and open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is on page 222 in the Brown Bibles. And if you're visiting with you with us, I'd strongly encourage you to grab a Bible. We'd love to have you open it with us and follow along as we go through this narrative uh, together. Now, as we've been going through this summer, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at the kings of Israel, we've seen two different trajectories. And the first trajectory was the, was the first king of Israel, King Saul, and he made some good decisions at the beginning, but his, his integrity and lack of integrity made his, uh, his trajectory go quickly like this. And as his trajectory started to go down, there was a, a young man named David who was on the rise and eventually rose and became king in his place. And David's trajectory was, it was on the upward trajectory. He had beat Goliath. He had done all these things. Last week, Kim spoke about how he was blessed. And successful. And his trajectory was trending upwards. But then David made a series of bad choices that started his own downfall. And it's the broader context of that. Right about here we hear the story of the rich man and the poor man. And so now if you see in chapter 11, if, if you look at chapter 11, what is the, the title heading on, of chapter 11? What is it? What does it say in there? David and Bathsheba. Okay, so so I'm I, I'm assuming that many of you probably know the account of David and Bathsheba, but I don't want to assume that all of you know it. And so I want to back up just a little bit to give you the broad strokes of what happens in chapter 11, because it's very important to what happens in chapter 12. And so here's how this plays out. In chapter 11, it's springtime, and David has his armies off fighting his battles, and he is back at the palace. He should probably be out on mission leading. But he is not. He is back at the palace, idle, if you would. Which had, and I just want to give you a side note on this one. Folks, uh, when we are not on mission, when we are not on purpose with our lives, we can be very easily distracted by lesser things. And so you may even know, like, even you can be tempted very easily if you're on a business trip in a hotel or if your family's gone from the house or by yourself, and there's lots of different scenarios we find ourselves in. But when we're idle and we're not on mission... We can be very easily led astray and give in to lesser desires. Anyway, one night, David, because probably he's bored, he can't sleep. And so he goes out onto the balcony of his palace and he begins to look over the city. And he sees a a woman who is bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. And for the sake of the story later, I need you to understand that the name Bathsheba means daughter of an oath. Just keep that here for a minute. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. And what he should do, as we as men should know, is that when you see a woman in that vulnerable position, what we should do is honor her by looking away. But what he does is he looks longer, and he looks longer, and he looks longer until he's consumed by his flesh. And he says, I need to go find out, find out for me, he tells the servants, go find out who that is. Now n- note, David is a married man. And as he finds out... Bathsheba is a married woman. And she's married not just to anybody. She's married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Now, that name, Uriah the Hittite, may not mean much to you, but it is really important detail for this story. Because Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. And so, so if you've seen Band of Brothers, or if you're familiar with this idea of saying, hey, there are some, there are some close men who really had David's back, his warriors, there was a group of them. And one of them was Uriah the Hittite. One of the men who had his back the most. One of the men who was out as he did this. As he's right there, Uriah is out fighting David's battles for him. But back in the palace, David has 
Bathsheba brought to his bedroom and sleeps with her. And somehow he thinks he is going to be able to get away with this traitorous, adulterous one-night stand. But probably about eight weeks later, she sends him a note and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And so David realizes he's got his hand caught in the cookie jar. David then initiates a series of attempts to cover up what happened. The first thing he does is he brings Uriah back from the battlefield and says, hey, tell me what's going on out there. And he tells him, and he says, hey, while you're here, why don't you just, why don't you reward yourself for all your hard work and go back home and spend the night with your wife. You deserve it. And Uriah is such a man of integrity. He says, I can't do that. I can't indulge in intimacy with my bride while my brothers are out on the battlefield. And so he doesn't do it. And David's like, ugh. So he, next day, he says, come back. And he, this time he says the same thing to him, except for he gets him drunk, thinking that maybe he'll lose his judgment and he'll go back. He still doesn't do it. So then what David does, imagine this. He writes a death warrant for Uriah, rolls it up, hands it to him, says, hey, when you get back in the front lines, please hand this to Joab, the commander. And so he says, okay. He faithfully goes to the battlefield, hands Joab a note that says in it, have Uriah go to the front lines and withdraw so he dies. And Joab, the commander, is like, this is an order from the king, even though this is one of his mighty men. He sends him to the front, people withdraw, Uriah gets killed. David takes off the gloves. He thinks he's got the crime scene wiped up. Bathsheba becomes his wife, gives birth to his son. And David somehow thinks that no one's able to put two and two together. But God saw all this, and the last sentence in chapter 11, if you see it, the last sentence says, But the thing that David had done, what does it say? Displeased the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, it did. So this sets the stage for chapter 12, which should sound familiar to you, but I want to read it to you again, just so you know where I got it from. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now I want to just stop here and tell you this, uh, this is legit. And, and, and I want to tell you this is because how many of you have really dealt with lambs that much? Have you had a lot of experience with lambs? Some of you have? So I have had some personal experience with lambs that I would want to just pr- share with you to say this is this guy isn't telling a story of using hyperbole. So uh, there's been an event or a different times throughout uh, my ministry where I have found it important to have a lamb to teach. As some of you understand, I like props. And because that's just how I roll. So I had an event and I needed to uh, have a lamb. So I went on Craigslist and I bought a lamb. Okay. And I got a dog carrier for it and, and brought the lamb back to our house. And something happened when I picked this lamb up because it must have, like, attached to me instantly. Because I took it out of the cage and the thing would just go wherever I would go. It would just follow me wherever I would go. Just me. And the the, the weird thing was that I had to to use this lamb in an event and it was was, uh, not the same day. So I had to keep it overnight. And I just need you to understand, lambs don't like dog carriers, as it turns out. 
So it's in this dog carrying, I mean, I'm not joking. And so I'm like, what do I do with this thing? So I'm, I'm going, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to pull the cars out of the garage. I'm just going to let it out of the cage and, and have the garage all night. You can have the whole thing. Just make yourself at home. I'd go in the house, meh, meh. I'd, I'd open the door. He'd be like, what's up? What's up? I'd go back and meh, 1030 at night. I'm in my bed. Meh, meh, meh. And my neighbors are friends. They know like, oh, Troy's probably got a lamb again. Like this is just, this is what he does. Like they know. But I'm still trying to love them as my neighbors. And I don't want a lamb till, you know, all night bleeding. You can hear it. And so I'm like, Lord, the silence of the lambs, please. So, so anyway, 11 o'clock, it finally stopped. Thank you, Lord. 4 a.m. I have to go out and sit in a bag chair, like in the garage. As soon as I open the door, I say, what's up? Why do I tell you that story? I, okay, I tell you that story because this isn't hyperbole. When he says the poor man has this lamb, this lamb is totally like up in his business. He's eating his bread, drinking his cup, laying with him wherever he lays. That's, I get it. I think the poor man may have done that just so he could get some sleep. I don't know. But the point is, and I think the point is that the, 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 the attachment that this man has to this lamb is significant. This lamb is very attached to the poor man, the poor man's attached to the lamb. And I think you need to understand that when, when Nathan tells a story, he says it was like a daughter to him. That is not a coincidence. Do you remember what Bathsheba name, names me, what her name means? Daughter of an oath. You can just hear Nathan's brilliance as he's telling the story. He's saying, oh, it was like a daughter to him. And as, as in Hebrew it would have been said, it would have been, it was like bat to him. Nathan's brilliant. He's about to drop this bomb on David. So Nathan describes the rich man, finishes the story out, and he doesn't say the end. He just leaves it hanging. He doesn't ask David for his opinion. He just says, that's what happened. Verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So folks, without any prompting, David just responds as any king would. And he responds saying, justice must be done. And he calls for the execution of the rich man who has made this horrible atrocity. And those, those of us who know, know from the outside that here comes the twist in the story. In response to David's anger, Nathan does one of the biggest mic drops in like the entire Hebrew scriptures. Here it comes. Okay, I'm going to reread 5 and 6. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You're the man. Not, you're the man, okay? Like, you're the man. You are that man. You are that rich man. 
And like a ton of bricks, David feels the weight of the reality of what had just happened. Like a giant Jenga, he had taken the piece out, just the whole tower falls on him. The twist is unveiled. And then Nathan continues now to, 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 to share the reality of what has gone on. And I don't know as we read what we're about to read. I wonder if David actually heard any of what we're about to read. I don't know. I'm just, because I think he's so struck probably by his own guilt and shame that he might just be like, like, I don't know if he's hearing what's just going to be said right now, but let's read what Nathan says as he goes on. Nathan says this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God declares that he is going to bring justice, and he has to because he's he's God. He is king. He's the perfect king. He's the perfect judge. He is perfectly just. And David knows what that justice would be because he just pronounced it upon himself. He had just condemned himself. But whether or not he heard all that, his response is very simple and it's very appropriate in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And in reality, I mean, what what else is he going to say? He couldn't possibly try to defend himself against what had happened, right? Although, we, do we not do that when we're confronted? Do we not try to defend ourselves and find excuses? He could not possibly deny what happened, but is that not what we do? We are very often confronted. We, we defend and we deny. He doesn't do either of those things. In fact, um, it's, it's a good reason to believe that Psalm 51 was formed right here in this moment. As David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan responds with these words. Good news. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But, bad news. Because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. This is God's word. So in spite of this ravenous, destructive trail and wake of sin that leads to death and destruction, David is actually spared, but his son, his innocent son, will die. And just a few verses later, if you kept reading, you'd find that's exactly what happens. Now, I think when we, we hear the story of the rich man and we hear the story of the poor man, we, we rightly we go, okay, poor man, that's bad. We get angry, we're sad, we're mad. And we hear the greater context of David, and we hear all this. I mean, think of the deception and the depth of lies. We get mad at David and say, yeah, he deserves that too. But I, I wonder if we, rec- we fail to recognize that the twist in David's story is so often the twist in our very own story. 
that we are the man, we are the woman. I was studying this, as I was studying this, I'm thinking, how does David not know? How does David not know that this is about him? This is like right on the heels of an adultery and a murder. How does he not know? How is, how is it possible for David to be that oblivious to this? And yet, here's the thing, folks. If David was that oblivious, is it at all possible that we too may be oblivious to our own sins? Is it possible that we too might have this air of self-righteousness? This is what David is, is, is presenting here, self-righteousness. We say, oh sure, the person that did this, they deserve to be punished. Oblivious to the fact that we are guilty all the time too. and We deserve justice as well. Now one of the reasons I think that we're so often oblivious to this is because we don't recognize that we are literally living in a culture that is saturated with self-righteousness. For 11 years, I have heard people tell me that they are good people. Even, Even people who I think have been part of our family of faith for a long time. I'm a good person. You see, Troy, there are bad people, those people over there. I'm a good person. You see, there are people over there that you should kind of run from and protect your kids from and stay away from, but they deserve what's coming to them, not not me. I'm good. I'm a contributing member to the society. And I like those people. Troy, we're... I'm, I'm a good parent. They, those people, don't even know how to raise their kids. We say, we say, oh, go to Walmart and check it out. You'll see. That's what we say. We help other people out. We do good things. In fact, we deserve the good things that happen to us. God bless us, and why shouldn't He? We, why shouldn't He bless us? We're so awesome. My guess is that is exactly the kind of thinking that, that somehow allowed David to justify what he did. I can't figure out how else he could possibly account for what he did. Now, it's not always that blatant. It's not always, hey, sleep with your buddy's wife, get her pregnant, and then have him killed. Like that's, it's not always that blatant. It starts out much more subtly than that. It starts out with, with these thoughts that we say, is, well, I deserve that promotion over my colleague. I deserve that account over them. I have worked harder. I put more hours in than they do. My kids should be the ones getting playing time, not those kids. I deserve to spend that money on myself, not my spouse. I deserve that. I deserve better. And so here's the thing. Anytime we sense ourselves getting angry at somebody else, we need to do a little bit of a timeout. Anytime we sense ourselves getting angry at someone else, we need to do a little bit of a timeout and ask ourselves, why are we getting angry? Because there's a good chance that Nathan could walk into the room of our lives and take the finger that we are pointing at that person and point it back at us and say, you are the man. You are the woman. In fact, I think what happens so often is the reason we get mad at other people is because we see in them the things that we hate most about ourselves. But instead of approaching this with self-righteousness, we need to have a response that mirrors David's response, which was humble. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. 
You know, Saul, King Saul was confronted throughout his reign as well. You know what he did when he was confronted? He responded with excuses. Trying to justify himself. And that's what we do. When we get confronted on things, we get defensive. We feel like we're back into a corner. And so we have to start going like this and pointing out other directions. Or we start to lash out at the people. This happens all the time. But no matter what, we can't hide the truth from God. We're exposed. And that should be truly humbling for us. Stephanie and I have been through a pretty humbling experience uh, the past few months. We've been going through the process uh, to be licensed as foster parents. And some of you um, have been through that and you know what that's like. And it's, uh, it's very vulnerable. Because they, they, um, you know, they, they kind of turn your life inside out and say, let's see every piece of it. They, got, they interviewed us individually, and they interview us as a couple, and they interview our children, which we're just like, oh, Lord. I, I don't know where this is going to go. You guys know our kids. Who, who knows what's going to come out of their mouths? This thing plays out. I mean, you want, you want to put your best foot forward, right? You want to be real, too. And so, you know, like when uh, the social worker is asking Ephraim, hey, what do your mom and dad like to do with you? And he goes, they torture me. <laughs> probably not like what she wanted to hear as you're going through the process. Like probably not. You know, we had, we had hit the waterboard like in the basement. But I mean, you know, and so she asked a good follow-up question. What, what do you mean? Right? That's a good question. They tickle me. Like, thanks. Yes. And so we got, this last week we got this big report. Here's the Lather family. Here's everything you want to know about them. And we got to look through it. And it's like, oh, this is a good report. It turned out nice. But as good as a report, as a social worker wrote up about our family, here's the thing, folks. If God is actually the social worker, the report looks different. It looks totally different. Because the report then includes all of our selfishness that he sees. It includes every instance of our impatience. It includes all the ways that we manifest our insecurities and our insufficiencies in our children. When we shame them, we compare them to one another. We don't listen to them. We project ourselves onto them. And and I know what you might be thinking, okay, Troy, it's a little bit different to have an affair and then kill a guy than it is to to project on your children. I don't know. Is it? I I can't count anymore how many of you have sat down with me and told me the impact of the things that your parents have done or said to you over the years that have impacted you decades later and created a destructive wake that has even impacted your children or your grandchildren. This is what sin does. It's destructive. But we're blind to it so often. We're just oblivious. Until Nathan walks in and he says, You're the man. You're the woman, and we are hopefully humbled all over again. And so we need to be humble. And we need to take time out every time we get angry, and we see Nathan walking in the room, and he takes that finger that we're pointing, and he points it back at us, okay? And what's awesome news is for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, we have a built-in Nathan, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in us to convict us of sin and righteousness. That's what what the Spirit does. He convicts us of these things. And if we listen to Him and allow Him to speak in our lives, we will be consistently humbled. But I, what I can say is that I know some of you might be like, okay, I don't, I don't even know if I need any more humbling because I'm already humbled to the point of despair. Because that can happen. When you're faced with the reality of your own sin, you might be just like, I could never, ever be good enough. I could never, ever overcome the things that I have done. My good deeds, I've tried. God could never forgive me or love me. 
And so what we do is we move from a, a space of self-righteousness and we move to self-loathing without hope for change, hope for forgiveness, or hope for the future. And this is how it played out for Saul. King Saul began turning away from the Lord. He got defensive, dug in the heels of pride and self-righteousness, just kept digging and digging deeper and deeper till the Lord removed him, himself from Saul. And Saul, in despair, went to so far as to the point where he actually fell on his own sword in battle. It's a tragic story. But David's story gives us hope. Because like Saul, like you, like me, David was a sinner. And he knew that the choices he made led to death and destruction. But, but God still said David was a man after his own heart. How is that possible? Were, were, were Saul's sins greater than David's or David's? I mean, no. What happened was David, in his understanding of who God is, he held on to both humility and hope. He responded with humility by confessing his sins and he held on to hope of God's righteousness that his righteousness would cover over him. If I said Psalm 51 was composed in this moment, if you look towards the end of Psalm 51, David writes, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and I, my tongue, will declare your righteousness. That's what David says. See, somehow David knew that only God could save him. And he looked forward to a time where God would not just be his Lord and his King, but his Savior. I think David knew there would be another lamb in the story. There would be a lamb who is not one who is like a daughter, but one who is like a son, God's only son. There would be one who would be slaughtered to prepare the feast. You see, even though we are the men and women who deserve justice for our sin. Even though God's anger burns against unrighteousness in our own lives. Here's the good news. The one who did not deserve to die, died in our place. The one who did not deserve God's wrath, bore it on behalf of those who trust in Him. You see, in the story, there's an innocent son of David and Bathsheba. He's just a baby. And he's, he dies. While guilty David is spared. Well, in the broader context, there's another twist to this story because there's another son of David who is innocent who dies so that we might be spared. His name is Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're kind of like, Jesus, meh, that sure really does it for me. Part of the reason that might be is because you're not really facing the reality of your own sin. That you haven't really had Nathan come into your life and say, you're that man. And you need, you deserve justice and you need, justice needs to be done against you. But when we realize that we're as guilty as David, we realize that Nathan could walk in on any given day and drop the mic in our lives and drop the bomb. Once we realize that we need an innocent substitute to take our guilty place, then we can live in humility and hope. And that's my prayer for us as a community, that we would not shy away from living in both humility and hope, that we would not shy away from confrontation and confession, but we'd embrace them. Family, let's not put on a front of looking like we have it all together. Let's live in authenticity, knowing that we're broken, knowing that we all fall short, 
Because this story reminds us we can't hide any of that from God. So why would we, we've got to stop trying to hide it from Him or from each other. And be real. And once we're real, we're able to be humble. To know that we need to confess to Him and to one another that we can't do this on our own. That our sins cannot be outweighed by our good deeds. Please, please, family, let's never say, I'm a good person again. But let's say, Jesus is righteous. Only His righteousness can cover over us. And that leads to hope. And if you're here this morning and you know your shortcomings all too well, and you think you could never change, that God could never forgive you, I need you to hear me say this. Jesus is sufficient to cover over whatever it is that you have done. Jesus is enough. Amen? His work on the cross is sufficient. And that the awareness that you have of your sin is not meant to take you to a place of despair. It's meant to point you to the hope of the one who can take it from you. Jesus Christ. It's the hope that we have and found in Him. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account and this story. Thank you that your spirit, for those of us who trust in your son, can be Nathan in our lives. Father, I ask that you would help us to be a community of of confrontation and confession so that we can be humble and be people of hope because of Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't um, see the impact, the difference that Jesus makes, may their eyes be open, may their heart be open to hear the good news that he has taken our place, made it possible for us to be reunited and reconciled with you, Lord. And so may we live in the humility of what he's done and the hope of what we are promised in and through him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to respond together. We're going to do it a little bit differently because we like to do it differently so we don't get into a routine. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together. And the way that I'd like to do this this morning is that hopefully on your way in you got a sticky note. If you didn't get a sticky note, um, I just need you to take any kind of piece of paper that's near you. Uh, maybe your bulletin. You didn't take notes on it anyway. That's fine. Just cut out the white part and just use that. That's fine. I need you to write something down. And what I want you to write down is I want you to write down if Nathan were to walk into your life and say, you're the man. And say, you're the woman. And he would call you out. Where would he be doing that? In what areas of your life would he say, you're the man, you're the woman? And I'd like you to write that down. Now, here's how we do communion at Kettlebrook. We don't necessarily have any boundaries around like your church background, okay? So um, what we do is, is we just have one kind of rule, And that is that if Jesus Christ is your Savior, you can celebrate with us. Now, I will say this. If this morning you cannot write anything down on that piece of paper, I'm not sure why you need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And so if you're really struggling with that, it may not be a good morning for you to take communion. Because of the depth of this meal that was shared, It was about a Passover lamb originally, another lamb, the Passover lamb, where Jesus reinterpreted it. You think about this account. He says the poor man had this lamb, and the lamb ate from his bread, and he drank from his cup. 
It gives me goosebumps. Thinking about how Nathan uses this story and eventually the story points to Jesus Christ. And so what I ask you to do is when you're ready, um, individually, you'll write that down. You will go to one of the five tables. There's five throughout the room. And you'll drop, crumple it, whatever you want to do. There's a bucket of some kind at each one of those tables. Drop that in there. And then you'll take a wafer and you'll take a cup and you'll bring it back to your seats and hold it. And once you've all done that, I'll come up and we'll lead us together in celebrating and remembering Jesus Christ. So that's what I ask you to do. Before we do that, I want to pray again. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before a table together and share in what is meant to be a meal to remind us that your son did have his body broken and did have his blood shed. So every time we take of the bread and cup, we be reminded of Jesus. Help us, Father, be convicted by your spirit in ways that we are reminded that we have to go and take these things to him say yes we have sinned against you lord we put this in the bucket and we say jesus christ is greater than that and we celebrate him and we remember him let's do it together father help us to be a family celebrating him now we pray this in his name jesus amen been about three times in the last month where I've been talking to people about our family of faith. And they said, you know what, Troy, I think it's just a little too much Jesus for me. And I can't tell you that there'd be ever a greater compliment that could ever be shared. Because He's all that we have. He's all that we are. Paul said, I, I've resolved to know nothing. I've, done, I've resolved to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And so we read this story of Nathan saying, there was a lamb. It was the only lamb. And he ate from the bread and drank of the cup. And Jesus, many years later, took bread and cup and he said this is my body that's broken for you do this in remembrance of me take me he took the cup this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins And so we take and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Knowing that we need it. Because it's our substitute. Take and drink. Why don't you stand? Father, may we be a people who are too much Jesus all the time may you be first and foremost in our lives because you're the only one worthy of it may we be people of humility and hope because you are the hope of the world we pray this in Jesus name and all God's people said amen, amen, have a great Sunday thanks